I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Hey, uh, do, should we uh, should we go back to these post-conciliar documents? <laughs> I love post-conciliar documents. We've had uh, pre-conciliar documents, conciliar documents, post-conciliar documents. Then we're going to have post-post-conciliar documents. And then pre-post-conciliar documents. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Star Wars uh, oh, yeah. trilogy, prequel, post-quill. Nyquil. That's about right. Hey, that was a good joke. I want some credit for that. What are we talking about today? Yeah, thank you. Credit. (laughs) We were talking about liturgica instaurationis. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that right? I I hope so, because that's what I prepared. (laughs) That's what I'm planning to talk about. That's not what I prepared, guys. Okay. (laughs) Well, it came from the Sacred Congregation for Divine Worship. And it has a cool subtitle, which is or title in English, which is Instruction on the Orderly Carrying Out of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, September 5th, 1970. You know what, what uh, is kind of, uh, I don't know, interesting about these, Dennis, is that uh, I think each of us is using different versions. And so yeah. mine doesn't have that. Uh, I got this from oh, the Adoramus website that yeah, you're in you charge of. You cannot trust that. You're not even using <laughs> your own version, Chris? No. Well, listen, you know, I have, a, uh, I have a, a pocket sacrosanctum uh, concilium. I also have a pocket post-conciliar uh, documents. I'm wow. not surprised. All right, that's not true. That's not true. But mine is called the third instruction on the correct implementation of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. Is there an incorrect implementation? Oh, is there? <laughs> well, the one, I like mine better because it says on the orderly carrying out rather than the correct, which implies that there was some disorderly attempts at carrying out that needed to be whoosh, whoosh, Paul yeah. VI cracking the whip on the entire church. Yeah. And Annabale Bunini of all people. Right. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> so it all sounds pretty good so far, Chris, right? We had the council. We had instructions. We have the new missile. We have these things. Everybody knew it right. And although it doesn't quite say it in Liturgica Instaurationis, you kind of get the sense that things aren't going exactly as planned. Yeah, well, this is what makes this particular document, Liturgica Instaurationis, a little bit different. Because after Tresa Pinkanus in 1967, then the books actually became available and started to be used. So in 1969, the Order of Mass was available and uh, the General Instruction was available. And then in 1970, in March, was when uh, other orations and prefaces became available. And so that was March 1970. So now in September 1970, the church and, you know, the congregation here is in a little bit different spot. No longer are they kind of giving these post-conciliar instructions as the as the books and rites themselves are being form, formed. And now they're saying, okay, now that this is done, we're going to comment on what we have done and how it ought to be received. But I think it's a little more than that, too. I think it's kind of like we've heard X, Y, and Z is happening. So here we are with the whip. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, so it. Oh, it could it be that soon? It was only a year later. So how could it be that soon? No. Well, th- but that's how they say it right from the beginning is they say, listen, this is what we've been up to. 
This is what they say in the document. This is what we've been up to over the last six years. Basically, what what we've just uh, talked about now uh, to to bring the mass to a kind of a clearer form. Uh, and so, really, the first thing that that they say about now this is done, they say, listen, uh, bishops and priests, you know, there's there are many options available to you now regarding the texts and the rubrics, so that you can sort of appropriately. Um, accommodate the group that's before you, all right? So now that you can make these appropriate and prudent and pastoral uh, adaptations, there is no, this is what they say, I don't know if you have this in front of you or what's your crummy Adoramus translation has. <laughs> yes. it says, there, there is then no need for purely personal improvisations, which can only trivialize the liturgy. That's exactly what it says, right? Yeah. And so the idea is we've given you options that are approved, licit, lawful. And so, hey, you don't have to make stuff up. And maybe because of the period between Vatican II and 1970, people didn't know what they were supposed to do. So they just did it on their own. Now it's saying, Guess what? No need for personal improvisation. And but strangely enough, personal improvisation lasted for many decades after this, yes. as I know all too well. Yeah, yeah some may say is, it's still among us. This is a bit confusing. That it, I feel like all of these instructions were here, and and yet there were some deviations. Well, what's the last instruction from the Vatican that you've read, Jesse? Wow, not for liturgy, guys. Well, nothing. <laughs> yeah, this is this is what happens to instructions. They're supposed to be read and approved of and listened to and implemented. And most of the time, people don't even know they're happening. I mean, I think of the average busy priest is not waiting for the Vatican documents to show up on his doorstep so he can implement them. We it's need just, more pocket versions. Yeah, that's well, right. I mean, but think about this now. An instruction comes out and it's available within seconds on many social platforms and you get, you know, a hundred different angles, uh, try, you know, offering interpretations and whatnot. So uh, now these things are very available. But, you know, think about in 1964, 1967 and 1970. I think these were hard to filter in. Yeah, and how quickly were they translated into all the languages of the world? And sure. just an, yeah. yeah. But this is an exciting document to me because it answers many of my particular things that make me cranky. Remember my 12 cranky points? Oh, how yeah. could we forget? Oh, yeah, boy. how could you forget? So uh, what does it say here, Chris? It says uh, some of these folks have been resistant to change. Some are impatient. That change isn't happening fast enough. Some are grudging, some are choosing personal innovations, what they call ill-advised measured new creations and simplifi simplification of rites that even conflicted with the basic liturgical norms and upset the consciences of the faithful. So the interesting follow-up from that is, I would think most priests who change things on their own think they're helping people to uh, understand liturgy better. But what this says here is, quote, the innovators have thus obstructed, obstructed the cause of genuine liturgical renewal or made it more difficult. A little counterintuitive, but why would they say that? Yeah, well, I don't know. I, we do know. Of course you <laughs> know. <laughs> the uh, the it, Sacrosanctum Concilium, I think it, all, it goes all the way back to this. You know, Sacrosanctum Concilium means this sacred council. And it says this sacred council has four principal aims in view, right? And one of them is to adapt where appropriate to the needs of our times, but the other is to unify where possible the integrity of the Roman rite and the Latin church. And I, you know, 
you kind of asked that question before. I mean, I think the 60s was just kind of a bad time for all of this mm-hmm. <laughs> to happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why it, it upsets the, the consciences of the faithful uh, because what the what the church was trying to give in her reform was kind of a unified expression of the Roman rite that, you know, it seemed to to maybe fray at the edges a little bit. There were too too many deviations and too many, um, you know, uh, imprudent applications to 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 different uh, occasions. Were there any right. measures taken into account for the diversity of, of communication? for you know the implementation of all of this well uh i don't know um if i understand your question correctly you know so think uh, i I read this in the uh autoramus bulletin it's got to be true then uh that in uh for the document inter ecumenici in 1964 so this thing is sent out right to the worldwide churches in 1964 in the fall but where are every one of the world's bishops in the fall of 1964. In Rome. They're all in Rome, right? And so the the point the author was making is, you know, trying to disseminate this information into the hands of uh, the appropriate authorities and have them implement it. That's fascinating. And communicate it to to their people was next to impossible because they weren't there to do it. Babysitting the dioceses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They're vicar generals, I guess. Vicar's general. Yeah. But he says, you know, look, this, if you do goofy stuff, it makes people not want liturgical renewal because it upsets their consciences and gets them upset. And they just say, forget it. If this is what liturgical renewal is, then I don't want it. Yeah. And so what the document says anyway is the result is that the bishops, priests, and laity have asked the apostolic see to bring its authority onto this situation and uh, make it right. So yeah. then it kind of lists a bunch of things that have to be made right. Well, and it does. But, you know, back to this point about the bishops is that um, this letter really is principally written to the bishops. Right. So it says, you know, um, where is this? Uh, The bishops are to have this, quote unquote, mastery of the knowledge. Right. They're the ones who are who wrote the Constitution. They're the ones who are meant to uh, implement it. And so there's there's a great amount of knowledge that they have to have. And so kind of the form that this letter takes is it's it's written to the bishops to help them to review uh, into the, the principles of the Constitution and suggest ways to help them. That is the bishops to implement this more locally. Okay, so what are some of those things that it says? Yeah, well, what do they give here? Again, I don't know how your yours is uh, numbered. This one, two, well, ten. Right before number one, there. Yeah, number it says one. Okay, there should yeah. be an exact application of liturgical norms. First of all, right? That is the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and when they are exactly applied, then it's called a sign of unity and bond of charity. In other words, if everybody's doing the same thing, that's how the bond of unity happens because it's one action that everybody's doing. And then they give some numbered suggestions here. So what's what's number one there, Chris? Uh, number one is about uh, the norms surrounding what they call liturgical formularies, gestures, and actions. Right. So these are the, these would be the prayers, the uh, the acclamations, the instructions. That in many ways the texts that are found in the order of mass, along with the gestures and different actions. Um, and it says that you know they've been simplified. 
right? Because this was one of the things the the Constitution called for, is that rights should be uh, short and clear and unencumbered by useless repetitions. And right? no now, more hand is, kissing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, people of good faith can debate about, you know, when a repetition becomes useful or useless and whether it clarifies or muddles and things like that. But the principle, I think, uh, is a good one. But what the, the letter goes on to say then, you know, is, listen, the church has done its work on simplification of formularies and gestures and actions. It goes on to say, though, that no one should go beyond these defined limits. To do so would be to strip the liturgy of its sacred symbolism and proper beauty, so needed for the fulfillment of the mystery of salvation in the Christian community and with the help of effective catechesis for its comprehension under the veil of things that are seen. Mm-hmm, I like that. That's something I would love to see written today, and this was done so long ago. That's awesome. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that'd be a good one for a bumper sticker. This is the L.I. modus operandi, though, right? Is that there's a reality kind of beneath, behind, within this veil, this tapestry of signs and symbols. And it's the job of the church and her ministers to celebrate the ritual, which is this ordering and use of signs and symbols in such a way that it doesn't muddle and confuse and distract participants from the reality behind the veil, but rather makes that reality, which is Christ and his Paschal mystery, start to shine out in all of its mm-hmm. clarity and beauty and awesomeness and life transforming power. Right. Sometimes they call this the Goldilocks principle. Have you heard of that? This bed is too hard. This bed is too soft. This bed is just right. All right. Same thing with the porridge. So this this mass is too complicated. This mass is too simple. This mass is just right. And the reason it's just right is because it lets this knowledge of the things sacramentally presented under the veil come through. And it lets the liturgy do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. But it seems, I mean, if we can uh, gather from this, that too many people were wanting to simplify beyond what the magisterium had already done. Right. Because the next sentence says the liturgical reform bears absolutely no relation to what is called desacralization. How about that? So there's a lot of worry that people have sometimes if the liturgy seems too modern to them. It's like too worldly, too secular, too all about us. It loses that special character. What, what about a special character? Well, that's what, that's what happens. You miss out. If you do that and you make it too normal or too like our culture, then you lose the, the beauty of it. You lose the sacramentality of it. Do you have right. a copy of this in front of you, Jesse? I do not. Because you, you are you are uh, of one mind here with uh, Paul VI. And well, that, that, that's, that's not the first time I've heard that, Chris. <laughs> that same line says, the rites must retain their dignity, spirit of reverence, and sacred character, which is basically almost exactly what you, what you Obviously. said. So, yeah, you, you strip away too much. You know, like Dennis is saying, the liturgy is, is, is just not right. It doesn't uh, radiate like it's supposed to. Right. And you can think about anything you do. So just think Christmas morning with the kids opening the presents under the tree. You know, if you had 17 layers of things to do before you could get to the presents. I thought you were going to say if you have 17 kids. Ooh. Yeah, or 17 kids. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, just like, let us open the presents. But if the presents aren't wrapped and you don't have the joy of opening them, then you're kind of missing it. If you wrap them 17 times, then it's like, that's kind of excessive, right? So finding that middle point, letting the event be what it is without uh, unnecessary complication, but not so much that you dig into the true uh, meaning of the thing itself. So what it says here is the effectiveness of the liturgy does not lie in experimenting with rites and altering them over and over. Oh. How about that? Or a continuous reductionism. 
but instead entering deeply into the word and the mystery being celebrated. And those things authenticate the church's rights, right? Entering deeply into the word of God and into the mystery of being celebrated. And it flat out says here, that's what makes it authentic, not what some priest decides, including his own preferences. <laughs> Could this be written in 1995 or 2005 or yesterday? It's kind of amazing. Well, you know, if it were written today, people would think, what a bunch of cranks. You know, to, to come out with something Benedict like the that. Benedict XVI, right? This. Oh, yeah, exactly. It, it would make for a, a kind of a fun quiz question. Who said the following? Yeah. That's not quite who you would think. Yeah. This next one, I mean, it's just, it keeps getting, I don't know, I, I think better, but it keeps, it keeps piling on. It says, keep in mind then that the private recasting of ritual introduced by an individual priest insults the dignity of the believer and lays the way open to individual and idiosyncratic forms of celebrations that are, in fact, the property of the whole church. Holy cow. Yeah. Because if the priest turns it into his own priest show, he's actually denying the people in the pews the, the trust of expectation that they should have, that they know how to do what's proper to them. And if it gets changed around, then they are he's stealing that. That's a kind of clericalism, actually. We've talked about sort of uh, high church clericalism where the people were told to be silent and let the priest do everything. But this is another kind of clericalism where the priest takes the right that belongs to everyone and drags it into his own. Yeah. Dennis, is that your thing on the three irreducible constituents? Right. Uh, the ordained ministry, the congregation, and the right. Um, but if it's too much priest, it becomes clericalism. Whether it's the priest hogging it in, the, in a low mass, say, in the traditional form, or the priest turning it into his own show, as you would have seen in the years after the council. Yeah. That word idiosyncratic uh, reminded me. Didn't we do a podcast once on don't be an idiot? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't think so, but isn't that what every podcast is about? Really? <laughs> every podcast is about the three of us being idiots. Yes, exactly. But uh, <laughs> id, the id is to, idiosyncratic is to draw too much attention to yourself. And whether you're the priest or the deacon or the cantor, or the lector, or the server, or the person in the pew, the idea is is not to be drawing people's attention to you, except except that they might be led through you to the to this reality which is the mystery being celebrated and so th this is what it means for a priest or any minister to be oh i suppose we would call uh, not idiosyncratic but a mystagogue one who is leading people through you know this art of celebrating we're, we're using modern uh, lingo here but through this art that uh, leads the person not to me, but to Christ, right? So this, me singing the psalm isn't about people hearing me, but hearing the word of God through me. Yeah. So there, this list here is quite specific, right? Uh, what does number two say? Yeah. So number two, after number one, they're talking, I guess you could say about the order of mass. Number two is about uh, the sacred scripture, right? So it's said above that, you know, the things that authenticate a, li uh, a liturgy is the clarity of expression of, of the word and the paschal mystery being celebrated. So then it goes to this number two, which is about uh, the word, about the word, about sacred scripture. And you know, one of the first things it talks about is, you know, cultivating the liturgy of the word and how texts are not to be substituted from other profane, ancient or modern authors. Now, I've and, heard that this has happened before. I mean, and I've never experienced it, even though I do remember the seven, the heady days of the 70s a little bit. But you hear people say, oh, we just decided to substitute the lyrics from a Simon and Garfunkel song instead of the first reading or some Asian um, philosopher who has something good to teach us. We'll do that because that would be ecumenically sensitive. And so, the um, council said we could. 
<laughs> right. Which, of course, the council didn't say they could. Yeah. No, it goes on to it talks about the homily. We've touched upon this a little bit before. You know, what's the difference between a sermon and a homily? And why is this homily thing such a, a novel uh, thing? Uh, but apparently it is. And I think it was in one of the other instructions that talks about, you know, what the homily is, is uh, explicating the mystery made present as it is expressed in the in the readings or the ordinary of the mass or the proper of the mass. But here there's this uh, line about the homily uh, saying, listen, it is the priest who is the homilist. The congregation is to refrain from comments, attempts, <laughs> attempts at dialogue, a dialogue or anything similar. So it doesn't say about eye rolling or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, th- this a homily is about a priest or, you know, a deacon, a cleric. Um, right. And this apparently was a problem, too. All, so- all manner of people were invited to give reflections or homilies or whatnot. It's the priest who's the homilist. And it's not, you know, the congregation to kind of dialogue with him uh, as he explains the word of God. Right. Okay. So that gets us through number two. But Chris and Jesse... There's three and four and five and who knows what treasures to come, which will come in our <laughs> so follow-up we're, we're episode. Like a, we're like an eighth through? Well, I don't know how many numbers there are. But anyway, we're, we're at a good breaking point. We'll be excited to follow up in the next episode. I'm okay. very I'm very fascinated about this. this so is, tune in, uh, same bat time, same bat channel. And uh, this week, by the way, instead of a liturgy question, Chris... Do you want to uh, tell us what is you're that doing? This week? Is that this week? That is this week. Oh, boy. My godson, the yeah, genius, Dennis the surgical is, genius. Well, 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 we'll see about it. So I, Dennis's godson is is uh, my uh, biological son. Uh, his name is Lars, and he's seven years old. And he's a, he's a cute, clever little kid who asks all sorts of interesting questions. And so uh, we thought that I would start to record some of these things that he says in these conversations that we have. And so we're going to start this uh, new little segment called, uh, is it called Liturgy and Donuts? I believe so. Yeah, Liturgy and Donuts, where Lars and I uh, have a short little conversation about some random aspect of the liturgy, and we get uh, kind of Lars's wisdom and maybe a little mm-hmm. bit from me too. So. Out of the funny. mouths of babes, as they say. And that's and not how just old the is Lars? Say it again. How old is Lars? Lars is seven. Okay. Does he know that we're grooming him to be the next host of the liturgy guy so I can take a step down? Is that Well, he doesn't know that, but I will okay. say that Lars loves doing these things. He's also proud uh, and eager to do them. So it's, it's kind of cute. And for reference, Lars is short for Lawrence. So just for all of you out there. And uh, well, let's give this a listen. All right. Give it a try. Lars, what's your favorite part about mass? Eating donut. You eat donuts in church? Yeah, when it's done. That's good. That's my favorite part of the church. Donut? No thanks. Do you have any fruit? It has purple stuff inside. Purple is a fruit. And now, a new episode of Liturgy and Donuts. Hey Lars. Yes, Papa? I was noticing the other day at Mass that when you were praying sometimes you were holding your hands together. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Show me how you're doing that. Okay, how do those look? Imagine if, imagine if I couldn't see what you're doing. Describe what uh, how your hands are. Uh, like this. <laughs> no, no, you had it right before. Good. That's what you're doing. So they are. You had your fingers together, 
and you had your, these are called your palms in your hands, you had your palms together, and you had your thumbs kind of folded like that. But I, I thought uh, that really, there was something I noticed. I thought, well, why is Lars doing that? So why were you doing that? Uh, because it's pointing up to God, uh -huh. and so it's telling God that you love him. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of your hands are, what else is, uh, when you're praying to God at Mass, what else is pointing up to God? What else is being directed towards God besides your hands? Uh, your love. Uh-huh. And where do you love? Where do you love God? Where do you love Mama? Where do you love Zelly? Where's love come from? My heart. Your heart, right. So your hands kind of, they're kind of um, expressions or or signs of your heart because they they show to God uh, the direction that your heart is, and they show other people too. And so, when Papa saw you holding your hands like that, what did, what do you think he thought? What was I reminded to do? Uh, to uh, love us. Yeah, well, to love you. But I thought, well, look at what Lars is doing. I should be doing the same thing. And so, did you notice what Papa did after I saw you? Uh, he started doing. I did. So it's a good reminder to me and other people. Um, that I need to direct my heart and point my heart towards God. I mean, because what else, where else could you put your hands? If you weren't holding them like that, what else could you do with them? You could uh, uh, go like this. Or you kind of fold, what, kind of intertwine your fingers. Some, I mean, but some, where else could you put your hands that's not very pointy, that's not very helpful? Down. Yeah, down. You could put them in your pockets. You could put them behind your back. What's Zelly do with her hands sometimes? Uh, she goes like this. Yeah. I was thinking sometimes she picks her nose. <laughs> That's not a very good thing to do with your hands, especially at Mass. But it's important, isn't it? How even your hands can help you how to, how to pray because they show the direction of your heart going towards God and they help other people to redirect themselves towards God and it helps your mind being redirected towards God. So do you, is, did you find it helpful to pray that way with your hands? Yes. Yeah. It's easy to forget, but sometimes when you remember, it's good and helpful, isn't it? Yep. Good job, buddy. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake at Aremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>